I love coming to Cornerstone every summer. I think, actually, I've been coming now for almost 10 years. And uh, so I've kind of grown up with you guys. And you've grown up with me. I'm going to be 50 next week, so big, big deal for me. Yeah, thanks. When, when you see me afterwards, go, wow, I can't believe you're going to be 50. You look amazing. You look like you're going to be 40. That, that would bless my day incredibly. <laughs> but I do love being here, because I really feel like this is an extended family of mine. When I was coming over the bridge last night, I, I love coming into the city. Uh, I love driving by my favorite baseball team's park, but I love knowing that I'm coming in uh, to this particular place, this community of faith that um, I call one of, my, one of my homes. So it's great to be here. If you have heard me before or you know me, you'll know that one of the things I, I love most in life is I love to tell stories. And I love a good story, and I enjoy just using stories as a great way to illustrate life truths. I think stories are really powerful. When I was growing up, the minute I heard a particular phrase, um, I knew something good, and good was in store. And it's a phrase maybe you're familiar with, and it goes like this, once upon a time. Once upon a time was the key phrase, because when that phrase was spoken, I knew that some sort of a story was to follow, whether it was a, a fairy tale, whether it was a story that my parents made up at bedtime, uh, whether it was something that I was experiencing at school. It didn't really matter. But I knew that I would be engaged, because stories have imagination. And stories have a quality of being able to integrate life in a unique and different way. Uh, they, they're a medium that can grab hold of all different kinds of emotions, uh, can express things that we can't always express in just a spoken word, and, and I think give us an insight into how the circumstances of our lives fit together. Stories have deep meaning, so much so that movies have been made about stories, that there are websites dedicated to stories. So parents out there, if one of these nights you can't come up with a story, bedtime.com, bedtimestory.com. For those of us who aren't parents, I just want to reassure you that bedtimestory.com promises a great bedtime story for children of all ages. So all of us are covered. If you know a good story, or maybe you've experienced this, oftentimes stories are passed down from generation to generation. That's how powerful they are. Uh, today, I want to talk a little bit about this idea of story and how I think story is a great way for us to share Jesus naturally, particularly our own story. And I think the best way for us to understand how that works is to actually look at a story. And we're going to find that in the Gospel of John. So you can go ahead and grab your handout. We're going to look at John uh, chapter 9. And we're going to look at the first 12 verses and then verses 24 through 27. Let me read those for us. As he went along, he saw a man, he, meaning Jesus, blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi... Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, 
In this day and age, the belief was that if there was any kind of a disability or something that really didn't fall within the range of what was normal, something caused it. And what caused it was either your parents sinned or you sinned. So this sort of a question wouldn't be unique for Jesus to hear or surprising. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him. Wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man that used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. Well, how then were your eyes opened, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man? They asked him. I don't know, he said. A second time, they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know. I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered, I have told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? This is one of my favorite uh, texts in the Bible because there's so much going on in it. And one of the things I, I love about it is I love that, for me, this story kind of encapsulates the entire summer series of sharing Jesus naturally. Uh, John chapter 9, I think, gives us some unique insights into what it might look like for us to tell our story in a way that's compelling uh, to the world around us. So I want to talk about a couple of things. And the first one is this, that John 9 tells us that story is an effective and important way to share Jesus naturally. Why? Because everyone has a story. And your story is unique to you. Now, in every story, there may be commonalities. For example, maybe you grew up in the same town as someone else. Or you see someone and you say, yeah, didn't we go to the same high school? Or you live in the same neighborhood or work in the same office. Those are commonalities that you have. But once those commonalities fall away, you have your story. And your story is unique to you. No one knows your story better than you do because no one's lived it like you have. No one knows the experiences that you've had like you do. No one knows the kinds of feelings that you felt like you do. That's why our stories are so powerful. 
Because when we tell them, we tell them in a way that's unique and reflects who we are and, and what God has done in our lives. Let's, let's think about our friend in John 9, for example. Now, he had a very unique story. First off, we know he was born blind. Not everybody has that happen to them. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, in his culture, being born blind was not an advantage. It's not really ever an advantage, per se, but particularly in a culture where any kind of disability was looked upon as being horrifying and shunworthy, really. So here's a man who's grown up his whole life on the outside, never really fitting in, never really having anybody want to be around him because they reminded him of the kinds of questions that everybody has. Why do things like this happen? Way back in Jesus' day, they were asking the same kinds of questions that we ask today. Probably he experienced a lot of degradation. As he sat by the roadside and begged, people probably walked by him and ignored him. Maybe they hurled insults at him. A few probably helped him out. But I would imagine that this man's life was not the one that he had envisioned for himself, no pun intended. But here's the deal. He had a story to tell. And his story was profound, and it was powerful, and no one was going to be able to tell it like him, although people tried. People around him tried to tell his story in such a way as this. Now, isn't this the guy that used to sit by the side of the road and beg? And, and people said, oh, no, this isn't the guy. No, this isn't him. That's somebody that looks like him, because there's a lot of blind beggars in our town that look alike. <laughs> Others said, no, that's not him. Some said, no, I think that is him. And finally, he says, look, let me speak for myself. It's me. I'm the guy. And I have something to say. You see, no one could tell his story and his encounter with the passion and with the perspective that he could. And the same is true for you and me. No one can tell our story with the same kind of excitement and depth and perspective like we can. Our encounter with Jesus is what defines our story. Not just a life story, not the kind of story where you go, hey, let's, let me sit down with you and let me tell you my whole life story. It's the kind of story that's constantly unfolding because we're not finished with our story until the day we die. So it's our life story that unfolded yesterday when something happened and we share it with someone. Something that happened today, something we saw, maybe uh, something that will happen tomorrow. But it's constantly unfolding and it's a part of a larger piece of a bigger story that God is writing. Now there's a twist to the story because every good story has a twist. And the twist is this, that if we desire for our story to be effective and important, to be a natural way of sharing Jesus, then Jesus has to be so woven into the fabric of who we are that it simply flows out of us. We don't even want to be thinking about a story about Jesus that somehow we can shove into the compartment of our life. We just want to be so tapped in to who Jesus is 
that it just simply comes out of our body. It's like it, it just comes out of our pores. And our life is lived in a way that we reflect it, and the way we talk and the things we do show it, and we simply have a story to tell, and we tell it. We get into relationship with Jesus. We, we cultivate it in a real and authentic way. We spend time and we invite God into all the places of our lives, including the places in our lives that we would rather God not see, as though God can't see them. We invite God into those places. We celebrate with God in the places we would love for him to see and celebrate. But we have a natural relationship a living and breathing relationship. We spend time in that relationship. We cultivate it by being with other people who are trying to do the same thing. Live authentically before God. Let the story of God become their story. You have some really great ways to do that here at Cornerstone that I was noticing. For example, you could plug into the writing workshop, or you could be involved in urban ministries, or go to the men's retreat, or participate in coffee talk. There's a lot of options out there, but simply it's a place where stories can be shared and the greater story of Jesus can be encouraged and you can begin to be so enmeshed in the best sense of that word with Jesus that you don't even have to think about what you're saying when you want to talk about him. Let me share an example from my own life. Many of you know that um, we have two kids, two teenagers now. Maggie's 14 and Trent's 13. And most of the drama in our house actually doesn't come from the 14-year-old daughter. It comes from the 13-year-old son who has autism. And some of you have heard a lot of stories about Trent. And you've heard some great stories about Trent, some funny stories about Trent. And then you've heard some stories about Trent that are, frankly, heartbreaking and painful. Well, I have a story that I want to share with you this morning, not just because it's a great story, but because I think it's helpful in driving home this idea of how our story can be used to share Jesus naturally. Uh, most autistic or many autistic people have uh, struggles with uh, digestion and a lot of food allergies. Since the time Trent was, gosh, three, he has not been able to eat wheat or dairy. His body can't tolerate it. He gets really bad issues with his digestive system. He kind of freaks out. Just, it's, his like, eyes dilate. It's as though, seriously, we said, Trent, come on over here and let me give you some speed. It's really unpleasant for everyone, <laughs> most of all for Trent. Uh, so we've lived for the last long time, 10 years, with no wheat or dairy in his diet, which takes some creative work. For those of you who have food allergies, you know what it's like. Um, for those of you who maybe know someone, you've witnessed it. But it's not, it's not the funnest thing in the world. It's not always easy. It can be inconvenient for sure. Around Christmas time, we were getting ready to go on a little Christmas vacation. And uh, Dan and Maggie and I were going to go on a trip. And Trent was going to stay home with the babysitter. And Christmas night, we had kind of done our whole Christmas thing. And rather than a big dinner, we said, let's just make a pizza. So uh, we made a pizza. And we finished up, and there were some extra pieces, so I wrapped them up in aluminum foil, and I put them in the fridge, because I thought, well, the babysitter might want the pizza, you know. And so I left it there. And we were watching a movie and just relaxing, 
having a great Christmas night. And all of a sudden, I looked into the kitchen, and I noticed that there's a big, huge piece of aluminum foil on the kitchen table where there once was four pieces of pizza. So I said, did anybody eat the rest of that pizza? And everyone said no. And then I said, where's Trent? And sure enough, Trent had absconded with the pizza and was hiding in another room. And when I walked in, he was shoving pizza into his mouth as fast as he could. <laughs> this made me very nervous because I knew what was to come. Merry Christmas to all of us. <laughs> so we waited. Nothing happened. We waited some more. Nothing happened. Trent went to bed as normal, woke up, was fine. About a month later, I came home from teaching one night, and my husband, Dan, said, hey, Trent ate a giant chocolate croissant tonight. Don't you love our house? Pizza, chocolate croissants. <laughs> it's awesome. And I, I knew what ones he was talking about, because I had bought them for something that my daughter was doing at school. And I kid you not, they were like this big. I mean, they were awesome croissants. I totally got why he wanted one. So evidently, when my husband wasn't looking, he stole the croissant and scooted off into another space, and sure enough, was shoving it in his mouth as fast as he could. Pizza, chocolate croissants, you, we might as well have just opened a can of wheat beer for him. <laughs> and we waited, and nothing happened. So that man, this is peculiar. And so one night, I said to Dan, we should just feed him like everybody else in our family and, and see if he's able to tolerate this because somehow these last two experiences, he's been all right. So we started just feeding him what everyone else eats in our house. And sure enough, he had no negative response. One day he was eating a graham cracker. And I was just watching him eat a graham cracker. I, I was just so thrilled about my son eating a graham cracker. It was probably like one of the top five things in my year. That could be construed as pathetic, I know, but <laughs> I was just amazed by this. And I thought to myself, gosh, uh, this is just such an anomaly. Uh, Trent is eating wheat and dairy, and he's not having anything happen to him. And then I thought to myself, it's not an anomaly. It's a healing. Because we pray for Trent every day to be healed. And we believe that this is one of the means that God used to do a healing in his life. So I started telling people this story. I mean, I was practically grabbing strangers off the street going, I got to go tell you this amazing story about my kid. Uh, one of the places I, I go a lot is to our grocery store. And I have developed a relationship with our pharmacy because we get some meds there. And so kind of do life together. And they always often ask about Trent. So I, when they ask, I go, oh, I got to tell you this story about Trent. And I just talk about the story. And I say, you know, we just have been praying for Trent. And I know no one in that pharmacy is a Jesus follower. I know. We've talked about Jesus. I know. But I decided, I'm just going to tell my story. This is my story to share. I'm going to tell it. And I said, gosh, you know, this happened. And it was amazing. And the pharmacist said, well, you know, sometimes when, you know, your son's 13, the kids, they're going to puberty, their hormones change, that kind of things happens. And I said, you know, I don't care what God uses. I don't care if he uses puberty. I don't care if it's hormones, whatever it is. God put his hand on my kid, and he can eat wheat or dairy. <laughs> now, here's the deal. I, I know that not everybody believes that. That's OK, because it's my story. 
that I get to tell. And I get to tell how God interacted in my life and share Jesus naturally. Your story's different, but you have those places where God works in your life. And when he's woven into who you are, it just rolls off your tongue and becomes a natural part of things so that you're not frantically thinking, how can I fit Jesus into this somehow? And then it's just awkward and inauthentic. Second thing I think John 9 tells us is that story enables us to share Jesus without feeling like we have to have all the answers. I think sometimes we don't talk about Jesus very much because we feel some kind of internal pressure that we have to have all the answers to all of life's questions. Uh, Ones that we've asked, maybe ones that others have asked us that have been hard and uncomfortable. I call these the biggies, you know, something like, if God is loving, why is there suffering? You know, why did God allow a tsunami? Why do small children die of cancer? I mean, they're the kinds of questions that uh, we might not be able to answer in this lifetime. People say to me, Libby, why is there suffering? And, and I'll say, you know, here's, here's what I know. I know we live in a broken world, and I know that things happen in life that are unfair. And I know that Jesus came to redeem those things and to enter into those things. Now, that's satisfying to some people, and for other people, it's not. But that's the best I can do. But God really wants us to just tell what we know. Tell what we know. We're not responsible for all the things we don't know. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, and you're supposed to know all the answers to all the questions and tell everybody that. No, that's God's problem. What the Bible says is, know Jesus and tell them about him. He is the answer. He is the ultimate source of the answers. You're not. I'm not. I love what this guy in in John 9 did because everybody was in a flurry about about him being healed. You can imagine, this is a pretty amazing thing. A, A guy encounters Jesus. Jesus spits in some dirt says, put this on your eyes. He actually did it. I don't know if I would have gone for that, personally. (laughs) He goes and washes his eyes out. He can see. I mean, the community must have been tweeting like crazy, Okay. (laughs) People want to know. They're asking those questions. And he's getting questioned. And they said to them, come on now. Give glory to God by telling the truth. Okay, kind of, they were skeptical. They said, come on, tell the truth. And he said, no, really, I'm I'm telling you the truth. And they said, we know who he is. He's a sinner. And what does our friend say? He says, I don't know who he is. But one thing I do know. I was blind, and now I see. There it is. He says what he knows. We say what we know. This is who I was. This is who I am now. This is what my life looked like then. This is where it is today. These are the challenges that I face every day, and this is how God enters into them with me. We talk about what we know. We share it naturally, and we let God do the rest. I think an important part of this coin, the other side, is that we listen to and value the stories that other people tell. 
that we're not so concerned about getting our story in that we discount what somebody else has to say. Jesus was so good at this. He listened to people all the time. They told him their stories. And he valued them by listening. You see, if we want to share Jesus naturally, then we're called to listen to other people's stories and value them, even if we don't like their story, even if we think their story is wrong, even if the outcome of their story doesn't work out the way we think it should. A friend of mine noticed a couple years ago that a myriad of books were coming out about atheism, uh, bookshelves on the internet, and he was fascinated by it. And so he told me, I just decided I was going to read all these books on atheism. And he's an avid reader, and he's a bright guy, and he was intrigued by it. So, so he read them. And I said, well, why are, you, why are you reading books on atheism? I'm just curious. He says, because I want to understand what atheists think. And I said, OK, that's fair enough. Well, then he started going to a skeptics group that we have in Sacramento. And every week or so, he'd go to the skeptics group, and he just listen, and people would tell us their stories, and he would listen. And finally, a guy came up to him afterwards and said to him, hey, wh why are you coming to our group? Uh, I mean, just curious, because we don't really know you, and we pretty much know everybody here. And my friend said, well, you know, I'm a Christian, and uh, I just want to hear your story and kind of understand where you're coming from as a skeptic. Now, notice he didn't say, I'm a Christian, and I'm here to convert all of you. <laughs> notice he didn't say, I'm a Christian, and you're all wrong. He said, I'm a Christian, and I value you enough, because God values you, to hear your perspective. Well, this group was so enamored with my friend that they said, God, we'd like to just hear more from you. And they had some friends who were atheists who have an atheist group here in San Francisco. And so my friend was invited to speak to the atheist group <laughs> about God, right? We came over. and. He spoke to the atheist group, and he just told them a little bit about his story and about how God intersects with his life and how you know, he's fascinated and intrigued by their story. And, and afterwards, he had a couple people come up to him, and they said, you know, this, this whole thing about your story of God, and I, just, I find this compelling. I just, I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit more about it. And my friend said to them, oh, I have a great book for you. You see, he, he valued their story. He listened. And in doing so, he's able to tell the story of Jesus. One of my favorite authors is a guy named Frederick Beekner, And he said this. He said, it's absolutely crucial to keep in constant touch with what is going on in your own life story and pay close attention to what is going on in the stories of others' lives. If God is present anywhere, it is in those stories that God is present. If God is present anywhere, it is in those stories that God is present. It is in your story that God is present. It is in my story that God is present. We have uh, the opportunity to share the story written by the author with the most compelling ending that one could ever ask for or imagine. That's why when I hear those words, 
once upon a time. I never hear them the same after I think about the story that you and I are involved in. We're going to have our time of giving in a minute, and the band will come up and close out the service. But before that happens, let's pray together. God, thank you. Thank you that you are the kind of God who is so gracious that you include us in your story, that you use our own stories to communicate in a way that feels comfortable and normal and natural, a story that will endure forever. God, may we be the kind of people who have you so tattooed onto our hearts and in our souls that our stories and our experience of intersecting with you flows out of who we are in a natural, compelling way. We give to you because we're grateful for the way you have changed and continue to write our story. Use what we give to complete the story that you have. And as you do so, we'll be grateful people. In Jesus' name we pray.